from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. On this podcast extra, we're bringing you a special series of stories about science and creativity. This time, it's part two of a three-part look at a staple of science fiction and fantasy, the multiverse. We've all got what-ifs. Walk up to any random stranger in the park, and they'll tell you what they'd do differently if they had a do-over. I would have been a scientist. I'd like to, thank you, brother. I'd like to make it be like a major discoverer of something. I would have bought that apartment in Park Slope no matter what. (laughs) I would have made about three quarters of a million dollars on it if I'd bought it when I slipped through my fingers. (laughs) To be honest, I would be 16. And I would have chosen to continue my higher education rather than (laughs) get pregnant and have a baby. (laughs) A lot of us can't stop asking ourselves, that other version of me, that other choice, that other life. Is it better? Yep, that's the question I always have. These are really existential questions. They're fundamental. They're part of what makes the idea of multiple universes so interesting. The thought that somewhere out there, somewhere in time or space, the road not taken actually was taken. These days, scientists more and more are interested in the idea of multiple universes. And there are multiple theories of multiple universes with catchy names like the quilted multiverse and the inflationary multiverse and the ultimate multiverse. This all feels exciting and new, but it's not new. The idea of multiple universes is about 2,500 years old. That's Mary Jane Rubenstein. She's a professor of religion and philosophy at Wesleyan University. And she says that long before nerds with pocket protectors were debating this stuff, nerds in togas were, the atomist philosophers in ancient Greece. Well, for the atomists, the ancient atomist philosophers, the most desirable thing about what we're now calling the multiverse um, was that it got rid of the need for a god. Um, if it is the case that our world is the only world, um, then it's very difficult to explain. You know, how is everything so perfect? How is it that sunsets are so beautiful? How is it that... Um, And what the atomists believed was that religion and the belief in these kinds of benevolent gods actually caused people to behave terribly to one another. So they wanted to find a different explanation. So their explanation was that it's not the case that some anthropomorphic god or gods made the universe so that it was just perfect the way it is, but that actually our world was just one of an infinite number of other worlds that looked totally different from our world and that worlds were the product just of um, just of accident, of particles colliding with one another and randomly forming worlds, and infinity, an infinite amount of space to play in. Which all sounds very modern, infinity and chaos and chance. And, and from what I understand is similar to multiverse theories that are around now. Yes, it sounds a lot like modern physics. But for a minute, let's stay with the ancient Greeks. Uh, Tell me about the Stoics, who had a multiverse theory of their own, but it was about time rather than space? 
Right. Uh, the Stoics gave us just one world in finite space, um, but every you know trillion years or so, uh, the sun would burn up the whole universe, the whole cosmos, set it on fire, burn absolutely everything, and then just leave a little bit of water and a little bit of air left, and then the whole world would reconstitute itself. So. The cosmos is sort of rebuilt and renewed um, and lives again exactly the way that it had the time before. Literally, you and me and all the and our cats and dogs and the, the same world over and over and over Yes. Again. Yeah, we have done this interview an infinite number of times before, and we are going to do this interview an infinite number of times in the future. And I will be sitting in this studio, and you will be sitting in this studio. The only real difference that they allowed for was that next time you might have a mole that you don't have this time around. That's uh, deja vu. I think I've heard you say this before one time. <laughs> um so I can take, uh, uh, thinking about the multiverse idea, I can either say, well, that's really self-involved of we humans to imagine that we're just replicated a zillion times everywhere. Um, on the other hand, it, maybe it's not so self-involved. Maybe it's, maybe it's saying, eh, I, I'm not, I am not important. There are billions of me. Who cares? Whatever. Let's chill. I mean, a, as this notion becomes an accepted part of the popular understanding of the way existence works, wh what will be the effect, do you think, on, on people and the way they live their lives and think about their lives? You know, it's a, it's a great question. Um, every major development in modern Western science since Copernicus has been advertised as this radical decentering of our importance, right? right. right? Um, so in the pre-Copernican universe, the sun was at the center and we were so important. The story goes, and we were so important. And then Copernicus takes us out of the center of the solar system. And then as, as Darwin takes us out of the center of the Garden of Eden, Freud takes us out of control of our own psyches, right? That as science progresses, we learn that we are less and less important than we thought we were. Um, that's one argument. But of course, it doesn't seem to be the case that these purported decentralizations of the importance of the human have in any way contributed to our feeling like we're insignificant, right? We, we still tend to think that we run yeah, the planet. Yeah, that may just right? be a desperate, desperate attempt to, to re reassert ourselves, but yes. That's right. So it seems like that's the dance. It's, yeah. it's this funny dance between the radical decentering of the importance of humanity on the one hand, and then humanity's reactions back against that decentering right. to reassert its importance. So you're a religion professor. What does contemporary religion have to say about this multiverse business? Obviously, Religion and science in all kinds of ways don't uh, necessarily get along. You do, though, run into some fascinating theological problems. Things like, for example, if you, um, if you are operating within a Christian uh, framework, you would need to ask, well, are there inhabitants of those other universes? And if there are inhabitants of those other universes, um, are they fallen or not, right? Have they, have they sinned? Do all creations fall? And if they have fallen, do they also need Christ to go there to redeem them? Which right. is to say, is Jesus just, you know, constantly traveling from universe to universe to get incarnated, teach for 30 years, and then die? Right? Is he like universe hopping? Um, th so th if you, or if you, are if there you many, many Jesuses? Uh you know, and maybe and, there's a Bible for each Earth, and it's it's six days here. It was you know, uh, you know, uh, millions of years elsewhere. You know, and if and if that's the case, then theology's got a serious problem. <laughs> 
Uh, this has been a pleasure. Uh, thank you very, very, very much. Thank you so much, Kurt. Mary Jane Rubenstein has written a book about all this. It's called Worlds Without End. So how to picture these multiple universes? I mean, not just the idea of another Earth with another version of you and me, but on the biggest, grandest cosmic scale. That's where artists come in. Charles Jenks is an American living in Scotland. I met him about 30 years ago when he'd first become well-known as a critic and writer for popularizing the term postmodern to describe new styles of architecture and art. Since then, he's created a massive installation piece called The Croic Multiverse, deep in the Scottish countryside. His work of landscape art feels both ancient and modern. It's like Stonehenge meets M.C. Escher. Anna Magnuson got a tour from the creator. Picture this place. Midsummer's day. A vast, pale sky, a hearty breeze, scudding clouds. And nestled between the familiar fields and farmlands, a stranger landscape. Gleaming green mounds, crowned with rocks. A high, bare ridge sweeping down to meet circles and corridors of standing stones that crisscross the land like jaggy grey teeth. This is a created landscape within a landscape. Charles Jenks has taken 55 acres of wasteland from a disused open-cast mine and transformed it into a symbolic universe. Charles and I started with a windy climb. We're going now up Andromeda Galaxy. We're walking on a little path with rocks to one side. All the rocks are red sandstone that we found on the site, and they're beautiful uh, rocks in themselves. They have these layers that make look like works of art, like what the Chinese called um, moonstones, where they see the moon and the rocks and, and the landscape in the stone. And they're getting smaller and smaller as we walk higher and higher and higher. Sassini Pass, Stonehenge, this is the cosmos, distilled to elemental rock and stone, depicting that interstellar collision four billion years away, a chaos of realignment unimaginable. Rab Wilson is a local poet. He wrote Multiverse in honour of Charles's creation and read it at the opening on Midsummer's Day. Well, I was born 10 miles from here in New Cumnock. I lived in Sankar uh, for 20-odd years. And, you know, I've never really left the area. This landscape and this, this part of the world has, has been, you know, been my inspiration all my days. You were in the mining industry, and this area of the multiverse used to be an open-cast mine. As a poet, what connections does that make in your head? This area was decimated economically post the miner strike and it has been a, a slow death by strangulation for almost 30 years and perhaps these are the first green shoots that we've really seen. Writing about this seems very, very fitting. You know, the, the, this ground was, was worked by the miners. So, in a way, perhaps this is a, a fitting memorial. Uh, 
I'd been uh, talking to scientists and working with them, and the new theory is our universe is one of several and the most beautifully balanced of all universes because it produces life and it produces uh, consciousness and, and, uh, and it's so sensitive that we have to explain why it's so beautifully balanced. You see, it's really counterintuitive that we find ourselves in almost perfect universe. And the only way we can explain that scientifically is to say, well, there must be other universes which are not well balanced. It's as if uh, God fine-tuned uh, our universe and took 30 parameters and got them exactly balanced to 1 to the 50th power. In other words, too much of a miracle. You've got to explain it. Scientists don't want to necessarily use God to explain it. They want to say why, how, and the multiverse theory is the one that, that does that. You don't need to understand the theory of the multiverse to feel the weight of time and eternity and space when you sit among the stones and signs. Charles describes this as a landscape worthy of the ancients. This is his great artistic skill, to find paths between science and spirituality and to look for meaning. And in this particular patch of ancient land, near the town of Sankar on the River Nith and Dumfrieshire, you're both rooted in history and freed by imagination. Sankar means crossroads, among many other old things it means, old seat it means. And it's the crossroads of the, the Nith Valley, which is the low road going north, north-south, and the high road, which is the southern upland way, which goes all the way from the west coast to Edinburgh, so you take the high road, I take the low road, and we cross the site. Well, they've been doing that for 4,500 years. Where does this connection with landscape come from with you? I'm intrigued. I mean, you grew up in uh, New England. Were you the kind of boy who was outdoors all the time and exploring and and and, you know, not coming home until late at night? Where does this love come from? Well, yes, it's true that it comes from Cape Cod. And it's an idyllic place. I was brought up in a house on an island called Boundbrook Island. And every day I'd look out of my sister's window and I could see a panorama of about 50 miles, actually, over the sea to Boston. On a clear day I could see Boston. So I hadn't thought until you asked me that <laughs> maybe that's uh, been a great inspiration always. We were... My father, who was a composer of music, bought this uh, round for very little money, and um, he built a house in... Uh, his, his brother designed it, and, and uh, it was in the middle of undisturbed nature all around us. I suppose it, you could say it was like Versailles, in the sense you could see the whole universe around you, mm. and no people. And my father's composer didn't want a lot of noise around and uh, wanted the quietness of that. So um, that was obviously in my stomach. Black holes, supermassive in their scale, might tear our future Earth from that serene orbit she's held, jolt her form terrene to some alternate universe far away. 
after our short human race is run. Everything about this site shouts cosmic, and what I've tried to do here is to unpack that idea bit by bit and root people in the idea because landscape is the art form above all that where you're using nature to feel nature, to represent nature, to think about nature. Why do gardeners garden in a way metaphysically? They garden to help things grow and to find their place and, and nurture it. And I think that's what landscape and gardening can do. You know, painting can't do that. Sculpture can't even, although I use sculpture. And meaning is important. I have to say that when you go into a landscape that you know is meaningful, you look for more meaning, and you find meanings that I never intended. And a meaningful uh, landscape uh, is something that leads the mind on and the imagination on. And I think you have to appeal to the brain and the mind in, in, in a landscape, and that's what I try to do. In cosmic time, they are undiminished, will be as shadows, alien avatars, when we again are but the dust of stars. You can see images of the Croic multiverse at studio360.org. A version of that story first aired on BBC Radio 3. And thus concludes the second part of our multiverse series. It was produced with support from the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation. Watch for our next extra podcast episode, our third and final segment on the multiverse, specifically about the crazy series finale for the 1980s hospital drama Saint Elsewhere that would end up uniting hundreds of shows so that now a character from Homicide can show up on Arrested Development or The X-Files. But back then, that multiverse-enabling finale was not everybody's cup of tea. Half of our audience hated, like, wanted to come to the MTM lot and burn us to the ground. And the other half thought it was a fitting part of the show. That's next time on Studio 360's Science and Creativity special podcast series. Thanks for listening, and you can subscribe to Studio 360 at iTunes or Overcast or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. 